Good Gab, sponsored by Skillskin, a nonprofit organization empowering individuals with disabilities through employment. Wow, it's another week. We are closing in on a year right now. I cannot believe it. And as always, we are bringing the fire today. Uh, today, it's an exciting conversation. Um, we have the great pleasure to have Jeff Thomas, the CEO of Frontier Behavioral Health with us today. Good Gabbers, I know you're looking forward to this one. Jeff, thanks for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. I know, it's kind of a balmy day, and uh, this uh, area needs some water. I'm looking forward to yeah, it. That's, that's the optimistic uh, attitude we want on a, on a rainy, cloudy Stormy day, so yeah. Uh, I never, <laughs> uh, I never was that way until I ended up uh, working uh, for a water district on, on the board of directors for a West Plains water district, and um, now every time it rains, I just I know <laughs> it's going down, and we will have water come August. Yeah, that's yep. a good thing. Heck yeah! Well, how's your day going? Going well. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, winding it down or trying to. So. All right. Well, thanks for joining yeah. us today again. And I know our listeners, I mean, Frontier Behavioral Health, we all know the name, but I don't know if we all know the organization. So maybe help us understand a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah. Well, you know, just maybe a little bit of history to just start. We'd love that. Yeah. That sounds great. So we, uh, we're about a month away from turning 12 years old, but that's a bit of a miss, uh, Nomer, because uh, Frontier was formed out of a merger uh, 12 years ago of two longstanding organizations uh, who between them had about 150 years oh, of wow. experience in our community. Yeah, so Spokane Mental Health and Family Service Spokane uh, yeah, made the decision strategically uh, to merge and, uh, and that occurred in, on July 1st of 2011. So yeah, and so we're um, one of the largest, if not the largest, behavioral health, community behavioral health agencies in the state. Really? Yeah. All right. So, yeah, well, yeah, and that's, that's got some good, good things and some challenges, right? I can imagine. Um, but, yeah, we've got about uh, 850 positions in our organization, uh, 18 different locations. And we're closing in about a hundred million dollar annual budget. So we've uh, more than doubled in size since the merger, uh, and serve over twenty thousand individuals and their families each year. So, I read that this morning. Over twenty thousand. That is shocking. That's a lot yeah, of people served. It is. It is. And it's and it's um, not not all the need that's out there either. I can tell you that. Uh, well, I'm curious about just your opinion on that. Are we, as a community, are we able to cover a majority of the need, or like, let's just start there? Yeah, I, I would uh, I would say that's an overstatement. I think you know the needs. Uh, it's hard to know exactly uh, to measure exactly how great the need is because um, we don't know what we don't know. But um, just when we look at the uh, requests for services, the demand that we see. Um, yeah, we just know that we're not uh, able to accommodate all of that. And, and some of that has to do with just the general structures that are in place. Some of it has to do with something that's just at the, at the forefront of our minds daily and has been for the last several years, which is a tremendous workforce shortage. Right. And it's I read not, you changed your model of how to uh, help people uh, yeah. just recently. How's that going? Yeah, it, it's going well. It's not without its challenges. But, you know, one of the things that we're keenly aware of is that the behavioral health workforce shortage uh, crisis, and, and we don't use that word lightly, 
isn't something that's going to abate anytime quickly. Right. We're, we're not going to wake up you know, and next year and say, oh, good, it's silver. We have the, a flood of providers coming in. Now we can meet all the needs. So it's, it's incumbent on us as providers to be creative, adaptive, and figure out different ways of providing services, different models, um, different ways of utilizing our staff uh, to top of credential uh, or staff who aren't credentialed. And so, yeah, we, we uh, really retooled our outpatient services about a year ago, and uh, it's, it's going well. It's a team-based model utilizing a lot more bachelor's-trained clinicians. Uh, we've developed an entire... Awesome. Yeah, and, and, but, you know, rare is the person who comes out of a graduate program, much less an undergraduate program, with their diploma, and they know how to, to do the type of work we're doing. Right, yeah. So <laughs> having some experience under your belt, I'm sure that helps them if they want to go after some additional credentials, right? Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> and we've developed a clinical training academy. We actually have a, a clinical learning center and. uh our new employees come in and they get more than 100 hours of training. So it's almost like a, you know, a mini master's degree over a several month period to really help prepare them to be doing the nature of the work that we're involved in. So it's been exciting. There's been a lot of learning that we've done through the course of it and mistakes made. Uh, and then you kind of adjust and adapt and, and move from there. But it's, yeah, it's been exciting. Well, happy to hear that. And that's yeah. great for Spokane, too. And you can yeah. kind of just pivot, change, adapt. I know we're doing that in our own work at SkillSkin right now. It's like we're having a really hard time finding people with disabilities who want to, you know, engage in the workforce. And that's just never been a thing for us. Like we always had people who wanted to work. And so we would we employ a lot of people, but we also help people find jobs out in the community as well. But right now it's just, yeah, we're having to adapt and finding other partnerships uh, in, in Spokane, you know, we're working with Catholic charities, trying to work in the low income housing world. Uh, we started talking to your organization too, I, I, actually. I know. Yeah. I, was, I was just going to say when I was walking out the door and talking to our service directors, I said I was coming over to do this, and and she said with whom, and I mentioned Skillskin. She said, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we're working with them now and trying to you know kind of help meet some of our clients' needs. So yeah, that's absolutely. awesome. Well, and yeah. that kind of ecosystem that you know that we're building is a I guess, a community. I'm just excited about I think yeah. we can really help people. Yeah, those partnerships are key. I mean, and that's, that's one of the things we talk about in our organization a lot is, you know, we provide a, a vast array of services. We have 50 some odd different contracts and, and, wow. we're, and we're providing, you know, all kinds of inpatient, outpatient crisis services. But, you know, there's no way that what we're doing can provide uh, the type of services that meet people's needs on our own. So everything's built upon partnerships and contingent on partnerships. And whether it's with law enforcement, uh, medical providers, whether it's with schools or other not-for-profit organizations. I mean, it is that kind of fabric within the community that is necessary and critical to make it work. Well, that sounds incredible. That sounds like how you can move mountains and really uh, impact and change communities for the better. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, and sometimes the, the mountains don't feel like they're being moved. They feel like they're being slowly climbed, right? Right. But, but, <laughs> but that's, that's the nature move, of the... movement, though. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, our listeners, like I said, a lot of us, we know the name. We don't know exactly what the organization does. But yeah, 50 plus lines of service. What's something that you might highlight for us today that we, we probably just don't know that Frontier Behavioral Health does? Boy, um, as I as I go through my mind, thinking mm -hmm. of the fifty different contracts or so, I guess maybe one that I'll highlight is is something called wraparound intensive services for youth. 
So and that's um, a program where we're serving about close to 200 youth and families each month. And the office space that's occupied by the team of, I don't know, 45 or so staff, um, clients, they never come in there. All the services are out in the community, in people's homes, um, wherever it is, in, in parks, in libraries, in settings that um, are their preference and that meet their needs at the hours and time that they need. And wow, it's a, so yeah, custom. Sorry. Yes, it is. And it's a, a multidisciplinary team. Uh, we have uh, clinical master's level clinicians. We have bachelor's trained clinicians. We have what are called adult peers and or parent peers and youth peers. So a parent peer is somebody who had a youth who at one point uh, was struggling with mental health issues. And a youth peer isn't a child that we're employing illegally. It's, it's, it's uh, somebody who um, is an adult who, as a youth, went through mental health issues and challenges. So those people can really kind of help, you know, um, walk alongside of the clients yeah. and really help them to kind of guide them and partly just help give them some hope. So, and, and we also have prescribers. Yeah, they can services. see themselves, right? Yeah. As an adult, they're like, oh, I can make it through this yeah. challenge. Oh, yeah, which is huge. Powerful. It's huge. And then we have medical providers as a part of it, too. And so it's really a team approach that's, that's neat. It's uh, serving a lot of folks who uh, many times uh, these youngsters would be, you know, they're the ones who are not making it in school, not making it traditional settings, um, you know, at high risk of being in, uh, in institutional care but helping to keep them in their homes and their communities. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty neat program we've been doing for a number of years now. And so what age of youth is this program helping? Um, you know, really, it, it extends, you know, uh, down pretty much into, you know, um, grade school, youngsters. Uh, and it can be, there's no particular limit, but, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds can be in there, but all the way up through, you know, 18-year-olds. And so it's really a broad array. I think we see a lot in the, you know, 10, 12, 15 age range. That's incredible. I'm, yeah. uh, I definitely didn't know about that. And I don't know, we've had a lot of people in, in this, your chair right now that are service providers in our community and folks who deal with youth in, in lots of different ways. And we've learned a lot, you know, like early childhood development, mm -hmm. um, some of the things, if we interact with people early, we can help set them up as an adult. Is it the same in mental health when we connect with people early? Yeah, it is. And, and I think, you know, one of the, the challenges that there's um, the funding oftentimes uh, is is for, for good reason, kind of uh, following where the most acute needs are. And those acute needs oftentimes are not uh, identified until somebody's in, you know, kind of real trouble. Like crisis. Right, crisis. Yeah. So inpatient care, crisis services. So, you know, we're continually looking at how can we find ways to intervene earlier and help to uh, minimize uh, the trauma that individuals experience because those end up uh, really uh, kind of cascading forward and, and increasing the risk of individuals as they move into adulthood having you know, significant challenges, whether it's mental health issues, whether it's substance use, um, difficulties with employment, socialization, all those things. So yeah, anything we can be d doing to intervene earlier is a good thing. And again, that's one of those ones that's uh, not done alone. It's, it's done in partnership with others. And in one example of that too, I'll share that you know, folks may not have known about, but we have really strong partnerships with a couple of not small school districts locally. One is East Valley. Yeah. And we've been in East Valley School District um, for, gosh, almost 20 years oh, now. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, and it's, it's uh, we call it our FAST program, Families and Schools Succeeding Together. So we have mental health clinicians in each of their schools uh, between one to three or four or five days a week um, providing services on site, and it's just been something really fantastic to kind of help support their students. Um, and we, uh, three or four years ago, entered to a similar contract and arrangement with, uh, with Central Valley School District. And when I say contract, the districts are, um, we're fortunate they provide a certain amount of funding to support that. United Way. They're prioritizing this. They are, which is yeah. United Way of Spokane County has been a fabulous partner in supporting some of that. And then through our just regular Medicaid funding, um, we're able to patch this together, but it's an example of earlier intervention that wouldn't be occurring otherwise for those those students, those young people. Incredible. Yeah, just layering all those funding streams together and just someone saying, yeah, this is a need. Let's fill the need. We'll figure it out. Yeah, and, and you know, it's the kind of thing that um, f folks have asked, well, gee, why aren't you doing that with more school districts? And, and part of the answer is just bandwidth, but part of the answer is that... Um, these partnerships, you know, kind of like marriages, they don't just, um, you don't just fall into them and they sort of work because they logically might work. They take just a lot of time, energy, commitment, intentionality, willingness to make mistakes and forgive each other and figure it out. Um, and that's, that's not easy. No. So, <laughs> not easy whatsoever. So it's really, um, I think the fact that it's working with those two districts is a testament to their commitment to figuring it out with us. So it's a cool thing. Well, here, here. Clap for East Valley and Central Valley. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Those kids are lucky. Yeah. yeah. Well, how long have you been in this world? Like, are you a clinician? Uh, yeah, by, by trade. Um, I'm a licensed uh, a clinical social worker and licensed marriage and family therapist. And so, yeah, I've been in the field, gosh, uh, well, I'm for getting close to 40 years. Yeah, which sounds that's like, a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, I, I, I actually accidentally kind of came into this field. My undergraduate major at Whitworth University or Whitworth College at the time was journalism, and I was doing an internship at the Lewiston Morning Tribune. All right. Between my junior and senior year, and uh, went down there, and I learned two things. I tell folks through that experience. The first was that I didn't want to be a journalist. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, okay, that's, that's not, good. What, <clears throat> not what I expected to learn, but it's not a bad time to learn something like that or figure it out as opposed to a few years into a career or 10 years in, right? And the second thing I learned was, you know, I had a, you know, the opportunity to uh, be doing some feature stories, interviewing a few individuals doing, it wasn't mental health work necessarily, but it was social services. Sure. And so I thought, gosh, I want to be doing that stuff, not writing about it. So how do I go about that? What's the path? So I, uh, when I came back to school that fall, I beelined it to my sociology prof. I said, how, how can I pursue something like this? And I didn't know anything about the field at sure. all. So, you um, just had the feeling. You're like, I yeah. want to be a part of this. Yeah, this seems like this yeah. is kind of, a, it really felt like a calling to me, I mean, truthfully. And so uh, he suggested I get a master's in social work. So that's uh, what I did, and that kind of you know, uh, charted the course for me, and then uh, through a number of you know, uh, job changes and moves, and I got a doctoral degree in administration at the University of Pacific down in Stockton. So we moved around a bit, and, and yeah, it's, from there it's... So, uh, so your, your career took you out of Spokane then for a while? Well, yeah, and yeah. my wife's career took us, yeah. took us out of Spokane. We moved down to Sacramento area for a number of years. Uh, and uh, worked in that area, and that's where I received my doctorate and also worked in the Davis community. And, uh, and then we actually lived in New York City for a bit. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was uh, moved up the corporate ladder, and, and uh, I accepted a job at a, at a homeless shelter 
uh, in in uh, Upper East Side of New York City. Um, and then um, I actually, when I gave notice to my employer in Davis, uh, we had a very entrepreneurial uh, CEO at the time, and, and she said, well, how about instead of quitting, we just, you know, you don't have any kids, you seem like your wife's going to be traveling a lot, she was going to be a, a national sales training person right. for her company, and, you know, how about we just fly you back and forth, and you keep working for us? Wow. And so I did that for like two years. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. You had all the airline miles. <laughs> You know, by the time I was done, <laughs> I had like 16 trips racked up. That's awesome. Uh, and I knew all the tricks about how to, to sleep oh. on a red-eye flight and how to, you know, the minute that you're able to get up to go and find where there's three seats for a six-foot-four guy, I could lay down and try and sleep for the I night. I love that. Yeah. So, but yeah, so it took us there. And then, then we moved back to Spokane in 1992. And we've been here uh, ever since. And I've been, I took the job as uh, CEO of Family Service Spokane, one of the two organizations that subsequently merged in 1997. So nearly 26 years ago. So I've been a CEO of, you know, around 13 years in one organization and, and, you know, 12 plus in the other since we merged. So you were part of that conversation of merge then. Yeah. And well, I'm curious, you know, we've uh, had a lot of people um, also on the podcast talk about, um, you know, there's a ton of nonprofits in Spokane, a lot of people kind of overlapping services. And is there a way to do some combinations to to just impact the community better? Like, I imagine these are the conversations you were having back then. Could you walk us through that? That's really yeah. curious. Yeah, it, it, because mergers can be a, a very challenging thing. And um, it's not uncommon for them to be painful. And it's also not uncommon for them to be essentially an acquisition, right? Right, and and somebody then subservience their identity and everything, and it's like, okay, we were, and, and it's also not uncommon that they're born out of one organization uh, being in a position where they they feel like they're not going to survive, so it's okay, it's like, a, as a survival strategy, we will merge and be acquired, and not our favorite thing, but here we go, and that wasn't the case, which is very positive and favorable to. Uh, you know, the circumstance that we had. Uh, it was really a product of our organizations had worked very closely together for many years. And uh, it was, the impetus was the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Okay, yeah. And, we, and when that occurred, we thought, you know, things are going to change. We don't know how they're going to change or in what way, but uh, we have a pretty strong feeling it's going to implicate our world and behavioral health. And the nature of the work that we're doing that's uh, separate from each other, but interreliant uh, in different ways based on our programs, we feel like we'd be stronger and a better resource for the community and better able to kind of leverage and maximize what we're able to accomplish if we become one larger organization. And so then we embarked on that process. And of course, that takes, you know, um, boards of directors who are willing and able to take that step. Yeah, big risk, big vision. Yeah, yeah. And so kudos to our boards of directors at the time. Uh, and into our executive leadership teams to really kind of help make that happen to, you know, go through the due diligence process, say, okay, you know, you start with, and actually our, our conversation didn't start with, hey, how about we merge? It started with, how do we develop more of a, uh, a, a close-knit partnership? And what would that look like? And we went through a number of iterations of how that might look. And then it's like, it, it evolved into, you know, why don't we just merge? Uh -huh. Okay, now, let's not just date and go steady, let's merge. 
but it, it didn't, it, but it was iterative, which is kind of, I think, also a positive because it wasn't just sort of uh, you know, hijacking things, uh -huh. right? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, and so our I board- I love the iterative process. It, you know, yeah, we really learned from that, those conversations. And then our boards went through a due diligence process, you know, executive leadership teams did, and, and then we made the decision that it would be you know, the best thing to do, and we all felt really good about it. And then um, yeah, we moved into that, and then of course, you, know, you have a lot of staff in both organizations who are you know, wondering, well, what's this mean? Uh, but you know, there's uh, no loss of jobs, and based on the size and scope and nature of what we did, um, it's not like we had um, you know, more people than we had positions, like uh, we didn't need to you know, lay anybody off, we didn't uh -huh. have two CFOs and one's gonna have to go, or, and it turned out the CEO, and this is, it didn't, I would say it turned out, it was, it was the case and it was a part of the planning and the process that the CEO of the other organization was about a year out from retirement. So it was good timing. Too. Yeah, so it was really kind of a nice flow. That didn't drive the process, but it certainly informed the conversations and it made it just much more natural and fluid you know, for that to kind of evolve the way it did. And, and yeah, no, no regrets about it. In fact, uh, just the opposite. I think it served us extremely well in terms of what we're able to accomplish. And it was neat, too, that we found ways in which the, the culture and textures and um, priorities uh, of each organization, uh, those uh, found their way into what became the you know frontier behavioral health way of doing things. So it wasn't just you know one way it had to had to carry the day in, in all instances. So yeah, yeah, taking neat. the best of of both worlds. Yeah, I'm sure you can still see that today in the organization. Some of where the beginnings were. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I was, I mean, I was just in a meeting between you know at the end of the day yesterday, and we were talking about a matter related to training and supporting our staff and. And we are having that very discussion about kind of where, how some of where we're at now came from each of the, the prior organizations and, and is still reflected to this day. So, yeah, it's that's an cool. awesome story. And, yeah, if, if you're thinking about this, listeners, I know a lot of you are running organizations yourselves like this is a great example that Jeff sharing with us of how it can work. So, yeah, yeah. just thank you so much for that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was capacity now we could start to grow. So what's the future start to look like for uh, Frontier? Complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, We're going to uh, layer more funding yeah, and yeah. more programs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, when I look at, you know, one of the biggest changes in our world came in uh, when our state made the decision in, they made the decision in 2015-16 range, but to move toward what they called integrated managed care model. So primarily the outpatient services that we and other community behavioral health agencies provide are under Medicaid funding. So it's for Medicaid enrollees, which by the way, there, um, uh, at the time in, we merged, uh, there was less than 1 million individuals on Medicaid in our state. Now there's more than 2 million. Oh wow, so it's like double. Doubled. And, That's uh, a short period of time. Affordable Care Act, Medicaid expansion, a lot more individuals on Medicaid, which brings with the behavioral health care benefit. So a lot more people, um, in need of and having access to our types of services. So, you know, as we look at how that's informed our growth and expansion, but with the uh, transition to integrated managed care and all that that's brought with it, we went from one primary payer in 2017-18 range uh, for our behavioral health services to now we've got, again, in one primary contract, I mentioned um, 50 plus contracts. You know, with different Medicaid managed care organizations, with the healthcare authority, with the Department of Health, um, some with you know federal grants, um, uh, some with uh, Spokane County. So it's 
it's sort of this complex uh, labyrinth yeah. of, of different you know contracts and services. You have and, to really know what lever to pull to make sure that reimbursement comes. Yeah, and, and how to you know blend these together in ways that you know they complement one each other, one another. So you know, what does the future hold? Um, you know, I, I just did a. Uh, a few weeks ago, a nearly two-hour presentation to our 100-plus managers, um, and the, and I also did a parallel presentation to our board of directors, and it was called something along the lines of the the, the landscape of uh, you know behavioral health in the state of Washington and and sort of our planning and strategy as it takes three years, and and the very next slide is a is a crystal ball, and then the the animation I have on it is a big cloud coming into that crystal ball. <laughs> so, so if you think I know what's yeah. going to happen in the next three years, um, that's not accurate. And, and I hearken back to if I had been um, standing here giving the same presentation three years and some change ago, so early 2020, would have never seen COVID coming. Right. Big variable. Would have never seen the workforce shortage crisis coming would have never seen some of the significant legislation that's occurred that's impacted our, our world, would have never seen um, something that's now a big part of our world is the, the 988 national suicide line, which is part of what we are a provider. I mean, there's so much of what we're in the middle of now we wouldn't have seen coming. So the, the most you know, accurate prediction I can make is that I can't predict what's going to happen. Makes we, sense uh, to me, but that's when you build up your leadership team, right? And the folks right. that can do the work to be able to iterate, evolve. Like how, how do you and your leadership team just tackle some of those issues? You know, a, a part of it is um, we do a lot of piloting of concepts, all right? And, and testing out and within the organization and with partners uh, we have in the organization. And, it, and literally just in the last week we've had you know conversations with healthcare providers with law enforcement um you know with with um, emergency departments looking at okay what are some additional ways we can test out some different ways of partnering of uh, responding to needs in the community and you know when, when we enter into those partnerships um you know it's, it's sort of a a cousin to the, my crystal ball analogy uh -huh. earlier which is i say here here's what i can guarantee you there's much that I can't in this partnership we're entering into. Uh, but one thing I can guarantee you, absolutely, is we're not gonna get it right the first time. We're not gonna stick the landing, it's just impossible. But I can guarantee you we're gonna be in it with you and we're gonna work it through and we'll learn from it, we'll figure out, we'll be uh, forgiving of one another and we'll be committed to kind of, you know, seeing it through and, and uh, and making it happen, but and, and I've never been wrong about the fact that we. Do, <laughs> we I've never been wrong about the fact that right we make the mistakes. Yeah. But um, I think so. If I look at what the future is going to hold, you know, it is something where um, there's going to be change. There could be the unpredictable. There's you know how do we uh, do everything we can to uh, sustain the core of what we're doing uh, and to evolve and adapt, you know, as we're going forward. Yeah, I remember back, to, it was in 2016, there was a, uh, a forum that Providence and I think Eastern put on here in town, and they brought in Patrick Kennedy, who's a big mental health advocate, just really um, fantastic uh, voice on behalf of those in struggling with uh, substance use disorders and mental health issues. And then they had a panel on the stage afterwards that I was asked to be on, I was honored to be a part of it. And we, we were cued on a few of the questions would be asked, but then they, the, the moderator decided to mix things like, up. Here and we asked, go. Yeah, and so at the end, he said, okay, well, what's, you know, what's the, uh, what do you see as the most important 
um, ingredient or you know uh, element uh, related to um, addressing needs of individuals you know with mental health issues and the one word answer i gave was partnerships uh -huh. and it goes back to what i was talking about earlier um you know we can do wonderful services and, and our staff do every day in the clinical setting in that clinical hour half hour um during that conversation but um that alone isn't going to do it so if i look forward and you're asking what where's our future hold i think it's going to be um, more piloting more stepping out into the unknown and experimenting and and uh deeper stronger uh, more involved partnerships with others i love that uh two weeks ago about two weeks ago we had ben stuckart from slick on and he was talking about um this new regional approach that we're putting together for homelessness and yeah. pulling all these partners together. I imagine that Frontier is an integral partner in that. Is my imagination right? Yes. Okay, yes, good. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you feel about this and what, like this this new idea of partnership and this iteration that we're about to stand I, up? I, I think it's a fabulous idea. You know, and, and again, it's, it's, um, it's one of those things where it's, it's impossible that it's going to be perfect. It's sure. impossible that it's going to solve the homelessness problem but it's it's also um the case that were there not to be efforts like that um then that'd be a really bad thing okay so if you wait for the perfect concept that you know is your positive is going to solve the problem to step into it you're just going to be uh sort of immobilized right the need right? gets greater and things change right. on the ground right so yeah. being you know i think so i think those sorts of efforts we have a homeless outreach team that's uh been doing this work for gosh 20 plus years it's it's a very small team of just a several staff i mean they their their day job is um isn't in an office it's um out under the bridges in the homeless camps they are out engaging with individuals every day and um, they know better than anybody. We have a fantastic per, uh, supervisor of that program that's been doing it for 21 years. Everybody in the community knows she's an expert. Crystal Alderman's her name. I'll give her a shout yeah, out here. All right, Crystal. Uh, but, um, and, and we've learned a lot. And I tell you what, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. When people talk about the homeless population, you know, right, right away we have a misnomer. There's not a homeless population. Uh, in, in my morning walk today, as I was mentioning to you before we started, around the, through the park, I saw you know, a few dozen homeless people. Um, everyone has a story of their own. Heck yeah. Everyone has a history of their own. Everybody has some, some other challenges they're facing. And it's not one homogeneic population. There's many different home, homeless populations, many different individuals and families and stories. And so it's not just one solution. It's uh, we're fortunate that we received some funding under a contract uh, to more than double the size, almost triple the size of our homeless outreach team. And so here's something that's, you know, kind of exciting for us. All we're, right. on the, we're on the front end, just just hiring the staff for it. Um, but we're being funded to provide not just the, the current homeless outreach services are to reach out to folks, help to connect them with services. And but those individuals have to come in somewhere for the services. This is a program where we're bringing outpatient mental health care to them where they live, providing it on their end. So we have a, a nurse a peer support specialist, a prescriber, mental health clinician, and guess what? We'll bring the care to you. So sort of like wow. I mentioned with our youth, we'll provide yeah. some of the services in homes. Now, if somebody's home is under the Monroe Street Bridge, hi, here we are to provide services, and we'll come back next week. We'll have some scheduled times or unscheduled times, but you don't have to leave where you're at uh, to come to where we're at. And, you know, when people say, well, why would somebody not want to leave? Are they lazy or they do not care? 
They might not be able to. Might not be able to. And there's also um, individuals who, if they vacate where they're at, their belongings are most likely not going to be there. To try to bring those belongings onto a bus, um, that might not be allowed. So, you know... um, it's, it's not a small thing for these individuals for us to have an understanding of the challenges that they face and for us as providers to transcend the barriers to try and respond to their needs uh, is just and get outside of the traditional ways that services are provided or funded or allowed to be, you know, uh, delivered. I mean, that's that's some of that experimentation. So um, it's incredible. Yeah. And can I predict how it will turn out? No. But, I, but, but we'll I we're gonna try. Yeah, we're gonna try. <laughs> we're gonna yeah. fail first time. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I can tell you is, if we weren't doing it, these, these people wouldn't be getting any services. So, yep. so we're really excited about kind of moving forward. With that is one one small part of this larger, you know, uh, picture that we're seeing. Heck yeah, that's the spot where people can start to get unstuck, right? Maybe that's that inspirational moment. Like, okay, yeah, maybe my life can be a little different. Maybe I'm taking care of, you know whatever need that needs to happen at that moment. Yeah. And, and you know what, it's, uh, it's interesting where, where the type of the latitude we have, the funding for this program is so interesting. Um, and this is going to sound either silly or revelational or just like, duh. Um, some of the funding is like, you know what, um, they'll, they'll fund us to, uh, we have, uh, we'll buy backpacks and we'll bring cans of dog food. Why would you really clinical services, dog food? Guess what? If somebody has a dog and that dog's hungry and that's their only friend and companion yep. in the world and you're helping that person to support that dog. You, all right. Now you're, you've taken one small step toward building trust. I and see being it. somebody that's useful. If, as opposed to you come in and say, you know, you seem like you have a mental illness. How about we give you some meds and do some counseling? Yeah, it sounds like real yeah. judgment, right? At right. first, now right. you're coming in alongside someone. Yeah, and I'm going to help you. I, I see it. a real need there. You have it. You know, your your one companion, and um, they are in need, and I'm going to help you meet a basic need. Um, absolutely, those are the kinds of things that really help to build trust, help to build relationships, and they become building blocks for therapeutic care and intervention. Yeah, you can start asking some additional questions after yeah. that. And I, you know I what? see it. It's brilliant. It, it, and you know. Um, that a pair of socks i mean just the basics and that can take um in fact our you know our homeless outreach team will tell you sometimes it takes two or three or five or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 occasions where you're interfacing with somebody it's not like okay well last week i gave you a pair of socks this the week before that i gave you dog food now let's get going with therapy not quite that easy right much more complicated but again those are the kinds of things i think you know and, and many other examples of of ways to kind of creatively address the needs in our community it's incredible, Jeff. Yeah. It's that empowerment model is how I, I'm hearing it. And yeah. Yeah. When you get to come alongside somebody, you're not saving anyone. You're just giving them a choice and opportunities mm-hmm. to, you know, to better themselves or heal themselves or that's incredible. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I wish we had more time to talk. This has been incredible. Yeah. Um, any, any last words for, for our audience today? You know, I would just, uh, just say, you know, the, as your listeners um, and viewers are, um, are in can- going on their daily walk in life, um, there's no doubt that on every single day they're encountering individuals who are struggling with mental health issues. They themselves might be, their family members, their neighbors, others that they encounter. And just to be mindful uh, and compassionate and supportive. Um, you know, one of the uh, earlier... 
uh, this, this spring, just early, early May, our Surgeon General of the U.S. Uh, declared basically, a, uh, he said, you know what, um, we have a, uh, an issue in our country and it's around isolation and loneliness. It is absolutely a, you know, something that is a, at a crisis level. It is something that causes and contributes to um, just huge challenges. So the Surgeon General saying this. Uh-huh. So to the listeners, um, you can be a part of the solution to that. You're not a trained clinician, doesn't matter. Just if you see somebody that's isolated, alone, struggling, just be a support to them. Walk alongside them. Say hi. Yeah. Anything, it, you know, and, and those, those things can go a long, long ways. I guarantee it. Thank you, John. You heard it here, everybody. You know, I told you this is going to be a good one. Uh, we'll see you next week, and thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me.